Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Take on me, take on me, take me on, take on me, I'll be gone in a day or two. In a day or two. Uh, we got a Grammy coming, I, I feel it. God, if we didn't lose five listeners <laughs> just with that alone, I'll be shocked. But you know what? It, it's hey, it's worth it. It's worth it, and it's worth it alone to acknowledge. They're probably wondering why the fuck are we starting an episode about dolls with a fucking aha? Exactly, and thanks to last week's guest, who I got to give him a shout out, Roman Kimienti. I got to say it right now. A, one of my favorite, and I mean this, one of my favorite episodes to date. I I love listening to myself talk. And in this one especially, because I sound like I know what I'm talking about. But that's because of him. Because he knows just a wealth of facts about the movie Angel. And he also pointed out that in this episode, the title we're covering today, Dolls, one of the primary players is none other than one, Bunty Bailey. Yes, we all know her, and we all love her. And, and we do know her, because for those of you who do not know her, she's the girl, as Roman pointed out, from the AHA music video for Take On Me, which we've we've all seen it. We have seen oh, many times. Oh, it's one of the more iconic music videos of all time, I would say, huh? The comic book, you know, transitions and whatnot. Yeah, she is... The, the the female lead for lack of a better term in the aha video so and i you know i had to double check to be sure so i went and watched the video while watching this movie and damn well it is her yeah it is definitely her so bunty bailey you have fans with dark night of the podcast just oh, for you just fans. for your name alone that is a good name i think it's it's right up there with bunky jones remember bunky jones from <laughs> Hang- <laughs> imagine the double billing with bunky jones and buddy <laughs> i would <laughs> like a buddy comedy uh. bunky and buddy uh, t- taken the city by storm in a hullabaloo. I mean, like, sign me the fuck up after seeing this. I could see those two working fucking Hollywood Boulevard together. Ab- absolutely. With Donna stepping up <laughs> and, and showing them how it's done. Teaching them the ropes. There's Maybe there's an Angel 5 in them yet. Uh, but that being said, if you haven't checked out last week's episode, I'm going to give it a special shout out just because I really loved it. I'm going to give a Roman a really good shout out because he was a phenomenal fucking guest. We love her. We love her. We can't get enough of her, and we really love Scream Queen. So make sure you yes. watch that. All the things about last week's episode I want to acknowledge. I also want to acknowledge, Troy, that you brought something to my attention recently. I don't know who did it. They chose to not leave a comment, but they did give us our 30th star. And for that alone, for that alone, we thank we, you. We have something to celebrate. Yeah, we have 30 
uh, 30 ratings on Apple Podcasts as of now, um, and several reviews. We're still waiting for a new review, but 30 ratings, 29 of them are five stars. There's that fucking one three-star one that's still lingering there. Oh, my God. It keeps me up at night knowing that one person with subpar taste is preventing me from having a perfect five-star I strive for excellence. If I find out who you are, I'm going to have some stern words. And then I'm going to tell you some jokes to see if I can get you to change your mind. What other podcast <laughs> gives you vocals, harmonies to begin the oh, episode? Live. Live vocals. Untouched. Oh, but we are. Yeah. So, hey, guys. Yeah. So we'll, we'll just dive right in and say with the Apple podcast reviews, please, 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 please give us uh, take the, take a few seconds out of your day and give us a five-star rating on uh, Apple podcast. If you're so inclined and write a nice little review, it really, really helps. People ask why it's such a big deal. And, you know, Apple podcasts, I think still is probably reign supreme as the prominent podcast app. And when people search for like horror movie podcasts or whatnot, what populates first are podcasts that have a lot of ratings and a lot of reviews so it really helps shows kind of populate in their in their search engine so to speak and you know me and roger we're just this is just a little indie podcast we just do this out of our home we're not like i don't want to say we're not professional but we're not like we're not in a studio we don't have a, a backing of a you know any sort of large conglomerate we we started this it's an independent podcast so that would really help us out a lot. And if you enjoy our content, we have a Patreon with the same seven subscribers <laughs> for the last several months. But we love them. But God, <laughs> those fuckers have been holding us down. We got to take a minute. We thank them discreetly on the, on the Patreon all the time. But for all you listeners who are not Patreons, this is what, you, this is what you're missing out on. Thank you, Patreon supporters thank you for your support and everything you give this is a personal thank you to you right if you now. if you subscribe to our patreon we will give you a shout out by name and you get you're going to have access immediate access to gosh 23 uh, bonus episodes so i mean what more could you ask for yeah you're coming in with a, quite a plethora a cornucopia, really, if you will, of episodes covering all sorts of weird titles from standards like Terrifier to uh, Disney classics like Return to Oz and everything in between. We Yeah, we cover stuff that we generally probably wouldn't cover on the main feed because of various reasons. Either it's it's a little obscure or it's not horror enough or whatever. I mean, we yeah, we've covered Return to Oz, Terrifier, Repo, the genetic opera. Um, blood frenzy. It's a it's a party and a half over at the fucking Patreon. You're missing out. And there's also uh, mini episodes. There are talking bodies named after that Tovlo the Tovlo song. I've already sang once. I'm not doing it again. But talking bodies where we just talk shop about the genre and we want to get you guys in on it. That's the place to be. The Patreon. We're really really pushing it this week. Talking bodies. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I got up it once. I'll put it on me. I love that song. But we are this week covering a title that I has always intrigued me, Roger. I saw this as a kid, and it has always stuck with me. 
always stuck with me. And it perhaps has one of the best, I, I want to argue, one of the best covers. The VHS cover, the cover art, the poster art for this film is probably among the most striking of any 80s horror film. You know, that 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 doll with its eyes eyes out and it's holding the two eyeballs up. Um, it was always such a striking image to me when I was a little, you know, when I was a kid going into video stores and seeing this on the shelf. Yeah, I, I think you're I, I think you're hitting that really on the head. I, I have distinct memories of being younger than being a fan of the genre before I really even knew I loved horror. I remember seeing this VHS art and being drawn to it for some reason that I couldn't even really probably describe at that time. It popped out to me. I, I, I distinctly remember that. Yeah. Well, we're discussing the 1987 horror film Dolls, directed by none other than uh, Stuart Gordon, who gave us The Reanimator the year before and From Beyond the year after. Um, so a very prolific horror film director who is generally known for his over-the-top gore in his films. And this one is perhaps a little more tame in the gore department. I'm not saying it's not gore and there aren't some disturbing imagery, but when you compare this to like Reanimator and From Beyond, uh, it doesn't really hold a candle in terms of, of gore. And I, I kind of, I, I get it because this film has sort of a... Like, it feels like it was made possibly for a, a younger audience. I think one of the things that stands out uh, about this film and actually helps it kind of withstand the test of time, I think, is the fact that it's almost approached as a fable in a way. Like, there's very much, like, lessons to be learned. There's characters to be punished. But the characters that are really the ones to, like, brute for and care about it's a film that it, they kind of prove that if you're, you make the right things and you treat people the right way and you do the right things and you're just a better person, you can make it through some shit. Whereas other people who choose to be shitty are going to get their comeuppance, are going to get what they deserve. And so it's a really satisfying in a way where you do have certain characters that you want to root for and you do like get to experience them. I mean, not to spoil the whole fucking thing, but like they make it through the experience mostly because they're good people, you know, and like that's really refreshing. Like, yes, this film is gory. Yes, this film, people die. Yes, there's some violent images at times of, you know, people's ankles getting sawed through by two mini dwarf people. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, you know, like you see these kind of violent images, but then at the same time, there's also, like I said, that fable element that you almost feel like the people who are being punished are getting what they deserve. And so it's really satisfying as a watch. I find it to be a very satisfying film. I mean, I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's one of the, probably one of the horror films from the eighties that really probably attracted children. The main, you know, the, the, the main protagonist of the film is a, is a, is a kid. So it was very, I think it's very easy for, for younger audiences is to watch this film and kind of find an attachment to it. Because like I said, the protagonist is a child it deals with a lot of things that will bring nostalgia to people and, and recognizing like things from their childhood, like dolls and toys and the punch and Judy dolls, the toy soldiers, all this stuff that we as humans have experiences with as a younger person. So I, I definitely feel like this was one of the films that as a child really, like I said, stuck with me and, and, and I remembered it. 
Uh, there was definitely a lot of scenes from this film that I remembered, and I had, and I mean, and I saw this film probably for the first time when I was maybe, oh, I want to say like ten or eleven, and it's always, always stuck with me. I and mean, on that note of what you were saying, Troy, because I actually want to kind of elaborate on that, what you're saying about this being a film that probably draws in children just because of some of the themes and the characters and the car- the kind of elevated at times cartoony elements of about it that that make it kind of feel like a heightened reality i mean it definitely has levels of absurdity to it overall it's an absurd premise and and a somewhat comedic tone but i would say this is if you're a you know a parent with a child who's expressing interest in the genre in general or you're a parent who loves horror and wants to kind of maybe kind of delicately expose your child to the genre without, you know, throwing them into a fucking human centipede right away. You know what I mean? Like it's, I think it's the perfect uh, stepping stone because of what you just said. Like it is in some ways it feels tame, but then there are moments of violence. There are moments of gore, but because of the central story is following this girl who is actually like rather proactive and for being somewhat of an obnoxious child, she's very uh, reasonable for the most part in how she handles things. It's almost got like a Dorothy Gale-like quality to her in a way, because you're kind of following her through this whole adventure. I think I think it would be a really great tool to use for parents to start exposing their kids to, to the genre, because it's just executed in a way that I think you're absolutely right. It will really draw them in. But there are moments of fear but I think it balances enough that they could come out of this and not be completely traumatized, you know? Yeah, I think it's very accessible for younger audiences. And again, that's not to say that the film is not violent. And really, there is a, there are a few scenes in this film that are terrifying even today to watch. But again, you compare this to something like The Mutilator or even like the first Friday the 13th that, you know, has extreme gore and extreme violence. This one is, I think, like you said, a very easy way to ease your child into horror. If your child is expressing an interest in horror, I think this would pair well with like poltergeist for a, for a younger fan of the genre. Oh, hell yeah. I think so too. And I think another thing that plays into that is even the, the way they portray these dowels, they're scary, they're menacing, but they're also somewhat cartoony, and they all each have very like specific personalities. But it's also shown that they have an element of reason to them. Well, the, yeah, I was going to say they're they're scary, but they're only they're only scary, and they're only really vicious to the people that dare I say deserve it. So it's not like they're just going around attacking like children and and anybody that walks into this mansion. No, there's a very specific reason why they target who they do, and we as the audience definitely can i don't want to say sympathize with these dolls with what they're doing but we understand why they're attacking the certain people that they are i don't want to say it makes it satisfying but it definitely it makes it more easier to swallow there are definitely moments in over the course of viewing dolls that you are rooting for the dolls and because they're spunky they're punky they're horrifying but they got senses of humor they're always giggling making little chit chat with one another i don't know man i i went into this fondly remembering the film i came out liking it a lot more than i remembered and i gotta say that uh, a huge element is just the overall execution this film just really pops with unique visuals, bright colors, even when it's shadowed, there's still like a richness to it. 
uh, the costume choices on some of the characters and so forth. It really feels like this kind of rich, vibrant, almost like fairy tale world appearing at this old mansion where you've got this elderly couple. It almost has like a Hansel and Gretel kind of vibe to it because there's they're hiding a secret. It, it, it's it, Like I said, to start this off, it feels like a fable. It feels almost like a fairy tale where there's a lesson to be learned and it really pulls you into that. Yeah, some of the acting choices are definitely, they, they play into this, like you said, fairy tale vibe that the film gives off, especially the the performances by the older couple. Of just this, this vibe of of these sweet elderly people, but you know, we as the audience know that there's something kind of sinister lurking beneath their kind facade. I, I love the atmosphere of the film. I love the setting of the film. Um, the film generally takes place in one location, this this giant mansion, and I feel like it's very effective. It makes great use of this location. You're never bored. You know, a lot of times when you get a film that's set in one location, it, it gets kind of stale. But the way they use this mansion and the different levels to it and the different rooms and how characters are moving around to different locations, it definitely, definitely makes the film, the film feel a lot more broad in terms of its location and its scope than it really is. Yeah, let's let's get into it because right away with the opening credits, you know, I mean, the opening credits, if you have a fear, there are people that are like, I think it's a real phobia. People are like have a fear of dolls, right? I don't know exactly what it's called, but I know it exists, particularly porcelain dolls, right? I think there's something really creepy about porcelain dolls, like they're the pale white ceramic. They They look oftentimes really realistic. A lot of times the eyes follow you on these porcelain dolls. Oh, I will absolutely say, Troy, that if you have, it's it's called pediophobia, which may sound like you're a, a pedophile, but it's pediophobia, which is, is the fear of dolls. And if you have that fear, I would, I would recommend you stray away from this film because the volume of dolls alone is something to acknowledge. Like, not only is the location, as you were saying, effective, but they make it feel so just brimming <laughs> with dolls. I mean, like, every room. It's not like there's one or two per room. There's, like, 40 or 50, and they're on every goddamn shelf, every surface. They're everywhere. At all times, you can't avoid them. This place is seeping with dolls. I mean, seeping. Just, it is spilling out from the doors. They are just everywhere, everywhere. But the opening credits, even the opening credits feature a bunch of like just creepy doll heads as the cast names are being displayed on screen. You get various creepy doll heads just with various expressions and poses. Uh, so, right away, you know, you you know what you're in for. You definitely know of, with a film called Dolls and these opening credits that, hey, we are going to get some fucking dolls. And boy, do you ever. So I, I really I think the opening credits are so simple, but they're really effective, especially with that kind of like circus music sort of that's playing uh, during the opening credits. And you're just getting all these. It sort of reminds me of the opening credits to Funhouse, the Funhouse, where you got all of the different Funhouse characters popping up on screen during the opening credits. I think this is probably an homage to that because the music sounds similar, but I really like the, just the simplicity of the opening credits and the different dolls that they show actually show up at various points in the film as well. Yeah. There are certain dolls too, that are, while there is 
an entire nation of dolls living within this household. There are certain dolls that you see a little bit more of that become a little more focal at certain times. There's that one dame with the sp- with the fangs. You know who I'm talking about. She's <laughs> always up to mischief. Yeah. Uh, there's a few of them. The cowboy you see come back multiple times. And then, of course, there's Mr. Punch, who is uh, kind of like if there were to be one doll that I would see say to be the 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 focal doll it's mr punch because the lead character the child judy takes a liking to him pretty early in so he's kind of always attached to her she's carrying him all over the place but other than that you really have like an ensemble cast both in cast and in dolls lots of dolls yeah and i I, I, yeah you do get to you do get to know like there's maybe like you mentioned like four or five dolls that are pretty prominent throughout the film so after the opening credits there is a scene of these two punk dames dancing in the middle of the road while they're trying to hitchhike and a car whizzes by and almost hits them so they have to like jump out of the way and they fall into the ditch and they're like the the the, your stereotypical like 80s punk girls they they come into play a little bit later but they're the film opens with them almost getting run over Uh, inside the car we get introduced to this dysfunctional, to say the least, family. You got Rosemary, who is driving, David, and their daughter Judy is in the back seat. And what we come to find out is that Rosemary is Judy's stepmother, and they do not like each other at all. Uh, you come to find pretty quickly that I would say everybody within this car in general basically hates each other. Yeah. The father can't stand his daughter. The daughter can't stand the stepmother. The stepmother loathes the stepdaughter. The stepmother also seems to not really be very fond of her husband. I mean, it is just brimming with tense energy from the moment you're brought into the vehicle. Um, And it's, pretty unfortunate uh as you start to learn about these characters you start to realize just what unfit parents these two are uh at one point later in the movie it's even suggested that the character of david the father is tempted to backhand his daughter and rosemary like backs him up on it and it's very clear that these two are just like some shitty fucking people i will say if we ever for some reason recreate this scene troy i do call rosemary (laughs) i i love her for the fact she wears furs i love that she only ever wears a head wrap um i i question whether or not the woman had hair for a majority of the film and she's just real rough to look at she looks like zelda from the original uh (laughs) stephen king's pet cemetery movie this this is the look that i i really took away from this woman um not to criticize her she's quite good in the role but they just really make her look like a bitchy like stoic unpleasant angry woman that's always scowling well the actress is carolyn purdy gordon and she is actually married to Stuart gordon the director a little bit of trivia there uh, but yeah, there is a there is a uh, funny comment because David, when they're driving by the girls, he's like, hey, you almost hit those girls. And her reply is, hey, you want me to go back and try a second time? So you get right away that this woman is kind of a cold hearted bitch. 
what I find impressive about this movie is it's you don't get a lot of setup, you don't get a lot of backstory. Like you're in the car and then you're suddenly fucking at the mansion. Like I'd say within minutes. You don't get a ton of setup, but somehow these characters feel very three-dimensional, even in the, the brief time that we spend with some of them. I would say this film does a really good job of giving every character involved a distinct personality. I don't think there's anybody who kind of fades into the background. Even the child, Judy, uh, first 10 seconds, I was like, God damn it, this kid is so annoying. But pretty quickly, she um, she won me over. Like, pretty quick into the film, I would say, it, it, they make it clear that her character is one to be both sympathized with and overall, like, you want to root for her. Like, she's very much just an annoying but likable kid. She's not like a shitty person like some of these other people in the film. And the actress is rather competent, I would say. For the most part of the film, I don't hate her. Yeah, I was going to mention that. It's one of my notes because I know we've had this discussion before in previous episodes where we've talked about how we're not a big fan of children in horror movies. But I feel like this this girl, this Judy, the actress is Carrie Lorraine, actually does a pretty decent job. And I think what really really cements the, her performance for me is the fact that she really acts like a little kid. It, she's very natural. I think her reactions and, and dialogue is delivered in a way that is very much like a seven-year-old child would do. There's never a false moment with her, you know, and, and she does really grow on you as the film goes on. Well, I, I would say one of the things to acknowledge, completely building off what you're saying here, is the fact that because of the film, and yes, it's a horror movie, but it's also fantastical and it does have that childlike quality. I, I think a big thing that plays favor into her character is because the setup of this film overall is so absurd, but fantastical and just has such kind of a... A whimsical feel to it almost I would say like a, a fantastical vibe her character's response to it I think really makes sense and plays upon the fact that she is a child that really helps her character the fact that she is a kid she is so connected with the dolls and the toys so much more already than anybody else is who is everybody else is so dismissive of them or mocking of the toys but she has interest in this to begin with because she's a child and because she's so drawn to it that when things start happening she's really the only one who really does know what's going on and just because of the journey and how it goes and I compared her to Dorothy Gale earlier because I think it's it's similar She's kind of leading this this cast of characters through this really absurd story, uh, but she's the only one who can really grasp it because she's a child. And that really does her character some great favors. She's allowed to be wide-eyed. She doesn't have to be this evolved child like you see in movies like, I don't know, War of the Worlds. Remember when you had... Uh, Dakota Fanning, who's always like Mensa intelligent and like, okay, it's impressive, but like it doesn't always feel natural. This girl is, you're exactly right. She's allowed to be a kid. Her reactions make sense and her interest in the material in general makes sense. Probably one of the stronger child performances from the eighties, I think. And, and it's not that she does anything necessarily amazing. It's just that the fact that she's able not to be 
annoying and and not to not to ring false in anything she does i mean i think this is a a beautifully natural performance from this child it's a shame she didn't go on to do anything else as they're driving a storm rolls in it starts pouring and and what happens is the car gets stuck in some mud i mean this this storm comes on pretty quick i mean it's they're driving and all of a sudden it's fucking thunderstorming and their car stuck in the mud it like it cuts to clouds and they're like, oh, there's a storm. And then all of a sudden it cuts back and it is like a deluge. It is it is a very strange transi- transition how quickly it starts raining. But it, it's OK. Like, whatever. I'm not going to fucking bitch about it. No, I, and I do like that Judy is reading uh, Hansel and Gretel in the back seat, which is definitely some foreshadowing there. So they get stuck. The dad has to get out to try to get the car unstuck. And inside the car... Judy says something and Rosemary is like, Judith. And I like that Judy responds, Rosemary. And and Rosemary says, that's mama Rosemary to you. And Judy's like, you're not my mother. I mean, so it's quickly, I mean, just with a few lines, it's established that these two cannot stand each other. This woman wants nothing to do with this child. Child hates the stepmother. Uh, the dad is just an oblivious dickhead. But the, the the car won't budge, so they they get out and they have to walk. Yeah, the chemistry between the parents it almost gives me like a Matilda vibe. I was thinking, you remember that like same kind of just like two really despicable characters. The dad is a dick completely and makes some horrible choices. So they they do a really good job of just making you not like these two people with very little time. I mean, it, you're in it. Yeah. So they're walking to the house. They see this house in the distance. So they start heading to the house. Little Judy is obviously scared because it's a thunderstorm. It's in the middle of the night. They're walking through woods. Rosemary sees her that she's like kind of timid. She's not, you know, rushing through the woods. She's like looking at things and, 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 you know, getting a grasp of her surroundings. And she has this teddy bear that Rosemary comes up to her and says, give me that fucking bear. You're, you're taking too long. That, that stuffed animal slowing you down. And Judy's like, no, you can't have Teddy. It's my best friend. And Rosemary grabs the teddy bear and throw, throws it into the woods. I'm like, who does that to a child? The whole situation that stems from it is completely unnecessary because it's kind of just, it's really just showing just how creative and imaginative, but also distracted Judy is because she has this whole sequence that she imagines coming up in which the bear becomes like monstrous and proceeds to maul her parents. It is not real. It doesn't actually happen. It is a, like a fantasy sequence. But the fact that they even added this little moment to kind of like appease Gorehounds a bit, I um, I love it. It's it's so unnecessary, but it's really a fun scene. It's fun. It's but it, it it's really out of place. It just it doesn't really have a purpose. It'd be different if like the the Judy character had these hallucinations or visions or imaginations throughout the film, but this is the only time it happens. It just seemed, like I said, it just seemed kind of an awkward scene to include. Yeah. It's one of those things like they could have certainly probably cut it and not really had it lost anything aside from time. And I think the one thing here is, is the film is like, as you said, it's, it's a short film. It's uh, what? 77 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 77 minutes. So this is a short film, a very short film. So maybe they were trying to pad the, pad the runtime. And like you said, it's kind of satiate your gore hounds because you know, the, the bear comes out of the woods. It's, it's like, now it's like this 12 foot tall, huge teddy bear that turns into like a, almost like a werewolf. 
and like slashes the mom across the face, not rips the dad, you know, to shreds while the little girl's just standing there watching. And all she can do is like, she says, Oh, Teddy, as it rips her parents apart. But then she snaps too, because Rosemary comes and smacks her in the back of the head. It's like, ah, you need to come on. I love that when she says, Oh, Teddy, the Teddy even like shrugs, like, oopsie. Um, and it is one of those moments where like, there isn't a ton of violence in this film. That's really like gratuitous, but there is this moment where, he grabs the stepmother by the arm and like rips her arm off. Like if you notice, like he bites her arm off, I believe it's rather violent. Uh, yeah, but you're right. It really doesn't go anywhere just because it's proven to just be kind of this fantastical moment. The only thing it really does is later on, they do mention what a daydreamer she is and it kind of shows where her mind goes, uh, kind of just at the, the drop of a hat. I guess it ties into kind of her characterization, if anything. Um, I will say this walk up to this mansion is like so like full of just wonder and like everybody is like walking so slowly. They sure make this mansion look like quite the location. Uh, they're all like gape, gaping mouthed and big eyed as they like approach. It's made to be quite the location. Well, it is a very ominous looking mansion, isn't it? I mean, it's just out in the middle of nowhere. There's no other houses around and this is just a huge, huge structure. It's it's dark it's dreary looks abandoned like if you're you're just like looking at it from the street it looks like nobody would possibly live there they even go up to the front door and knock and try to open the front door and and it's nobody answers the door's locked rosemary starts to freak out and she's like "Well, well suppose these people know something we don't suppose they left for higher ground suppose they know it's gonna flood suppose we're trapped and he's like suppose you shut up but she right away hears him. And she's like, what did you say? And he's like, Oh, I said, uh, I suppose we should try to find a different way in. So he does. You, it's, it's clear from the start also who wears the pants in this family. And it's this, it's the stepmother. Like they're really painting her to be the stereotypical wicked stepmother type of character. And if you, if you notice like what she's wearing with like the scarf around her head and whatnot and her, the capes that she's wearing, it very much harkens to like the evil queen in, in um, Snow White. Oh, very much. And I, there's like a Cruella de Vil element to her. Um, and then later on in the film, there's a point where she actually acknowledges the financial difference between her and David, where he says, our family has money or something. And she says, my family has money. Something along those lines. No, he says, yeah, he says, we're rich. And she's like, I'm rich. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of those moments where you, it's just a little bit of dialogue there goes a long way to really establish just what the balance is. Because yeah, you're right. This broad is uh, head of this household. And she is not happy that this child is present in general. She says multiple times she wishes that they were on a different vacation somewhere, just the two of them. Um, It's made very clear that they don't want the kid necessarily to be part of the structure, which is very sad. So they they leave the front door because nobody answers and they can't get in. And they kind of go snooping around the property and they find this like door that leads. It's like a cellar door, right? And it's unlocked and they go in to the house and right away, like Judy hears when they get in the house, you hear some laughing, like faint laughing. (laughs) And then she sees like this small figure, like duck into the shadows and she jumps back and knocks her dad into like the pile of like junk that's, that's in this basement. Suddenly this old white haired man 
comes out. He's at the top of the stairway pointing a gun at them with his, with his wife by his side, his, his white haired wife. And he tells them, Hey, we like guests, but we generally prefer them to use the front door. And this is when Judy says, well, the front door was locked. Nobody answered. And they're immediately, you can tell the old couple is immediately taken with this little girl. Like they're the only, they're the first characters in the film to show this, like any sort of caring or interest in this little girl. And it's because of her that they actually just invite the family in to get warm and to have a meal. So they, they, they invite them upstairs as they're going up, they're going through the house. Gabriel the old man's name is Gabriel and his wife is Hillary Hardwick, the Hardwicks. And it's really interesting because Hillary, the actress that plays Hillary is Hillary Mason who Roger, I don't know if you know this or not, but she is the milky eyed psychic from don't look now. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yes. Yeah. She's the milk and we covered don't look now several episodes ago. So it's kind of funny as we're doing that, as we go along in this oh podcast, finding, making all these co- connections to all the different movies. Yeah. She's the milky eyed psychic and don't look now thinking of her, like her face and overall, like her look. I, I was thinking when watching this, I was like, I know this woman. I just don't know what she's been in, but that makes a lot of sense. Cause she has a very distinct look. Yeah, she does. She there's does. like there's like a warmth to her. She's really good at playing these grandmotherly kind of characters, and because that warmth really translates really well, she gives a, a big performance in this. But it it makes sense. I I appreciate what she does with the character uh, because I think it all kind of builds to a conclusion that makes sense as to why she's so big and so kind of over the top. But the whole introduction to these characters, first of all, that basement is far too dry. I live in Ohio. We have basements. I've been in houses of that condition. That That is a very dry basement for a house of that size, let me just say. Second of all, these two old fuckers, the theatrics of it all, like even if it works for the characters, it is still quite a theatrical performance. You do feel like you walked into a fairy tale. They very much feel like they are uh, kind of almost animated or um, just kind of written in, in, in a theatrical, cartoony way at times. They seem to be almost uh, stereotypes of uh, these kinds of archetypes of characters, uh, this kind of foreboding, foreboding older couple. They're really playing it up in a big way, but it lends to the film. I really like what they do with them. They definitely give the film a kind of a, a surreal tone exactly i mean they're exactly. they're they're very ethereal in their performance i mean it, it's just yeah they they compared to like the like the grounded like bitchy bickering of the three these three characters that we've been introduced so far and then you bring these two these this old couple in and there's just a distinct difference in their behavior and their line delivery and they're just their overall uh, screen presence that it really is kind of a, a, a jarring difference that is sets the film up and sets kind of the tone of the rest of the film up it's very interesting well and as the film goes on troy like one other thing i think to acknowledge with these characters is you see them and you see them come on the screen and and right off the bat you think they're going to be the antagonists of the film and you know to a certain extent they are because, you know, they are aware of what's going on and they're kind of overseeing it. But as you spend more time with them and realize that they're more like they're there to kind of like. 
they're basically their whole purpose with the characters is to say, heed my warning, like listen to the undertones of what I'm saying to you. Think about what we're really saying to you here in this dialogue. And if you listen to us and you tap into, you know, your inner childhood and kind of give into that aspect of, of being a human being, things might work out for you. But for those of you who are selfish, for those of you who grow up and let let that aspect of, of who you are kind of consume your personality and in turn become a bad person or a, a person who makes bad choices, you know, you, you're going to be punished. They're really there to kind of provide like a, a warning to the cast. And a lot of the cast just doesn't pick up on it, doesn't understand it. Uh, but they never become like, they don't become like, like a, uh, it's not like a, a motel hell situation or I'm trying, you know, a, a situation where you have somebody who's an, an older figure who's like maniacally in the background, like, I'm going to kill all of these people myself and I'm going to love it. They're just kind of there and they're like, you know what? If you fuck up, that's on you and shit's going to hit the fan and you'll suffer that. But uh, hopefully, you know, ideally you make the right choices and things work out. Exactly. And it really makes, like I said, it makes it an interesting dynamic throughout the film because you were right. They are technically the antagonists, but not really. I mean, because by the end of the film, I honestly do not hate these characters at all in fact they're probably the the most intelligent characters of the entire film uh so as gabriel is taking judy through the house he's asking her if she's afraid of the dark because the house is quite dark because the power is out because of the storm and she's like no but i'm afraid of what's in the dark and he's like oh you have such an active imagination it's that's good uh, and on the way to the kitchen, they stop and see, we get the first kind of view of a room that is just full of these dolls sitting on shelves. And Judy is just in awe. She's an, an enamored of, of all these dolls. And Gabriel and, and Hillary can completely tell that this little girl is so, so amazed by all these toys. They go to the dinner table and they're having dinner. And through conversation, We've come to find out that Gabriel is a doll maker. That's his job. He makes dolls. And he says that the storm actually helps him be more creative in his work. And then he, he, he notices that Judy does not have a doll. He's like, I find it very unnatural for a little girl not to have a doll. So he gives her the punch doll, the Mr. Punch doll. I mean, obviously, Punch and Judy get it, <laughs> but I mean, it was very intentional. But this Punch doll, you know, I, these dolls are creepy looking, you know, but it has a personality and I, I kind of like him. I kind of like Mr. Punch. I, I do appreciate the warmth that they that this couple displays to her right off the bat because she deserves it. Well, and you noticed, you noticed when the, when this old couple is being nice to her and showing interest in her and asking her questions, what are the two parents doing? Rolling their eyes, making smart ass comments. Well, and there's also the moment when he makes a statement about the doll, just to show just how truly like low and shitty these two really are. He makes the comment about the doll and she uh, and Rosemary intervenes and says, oh, uh, she I think she says like, oh, she lost it on the path or she she dropped it or, you know, she implies that 
that the teddy bear was actually like accidentally left behind. Whereas it is very obvious in the, in the scene when it happens that Rosemary forcefully takes the teddy bear from her and throws it into the bushes. So she's completely like putting the blame on the child when she actually did something quite cruel to the, the child. And now, uh, now that it's being called out, she's completely denying it. It just makes her character seem that much more despicable, you know? Well, when, yeah, when, when Judy goes to tell the old man that she did not, th- she, that she did not drop the doll in the woods, the Rosemary kicks her under the table so that she says, Oh yeah, I dropped it in the woods at this in this lovely, beautiful moment of these this old couple bonding with this child and giving her the, this punch doll, all of a sudden the door bursts open, and who comes in? Fucking Bunky, what's her name? Bunky Bunty Bailey. <laughs> Bunty Bailey. Let's show a little respect around here, Troy, for an icon. <laughs> Bunty Bunty Bailey and her sidekick, um, who's this girl? Whew. Okay, uh, that's all I'm that, gonna say. That lip liner. Like that's whoever made that choice needs to be called out because there's a lot of cool, fun, interesting, unique looks in this film. That girl, I would say, got the the shit end of the deal with that lip liner. I mean, she definitely is not the pretty one in this group. That title goes to one Bunty Bailey, who looks like a, a combination of Madonna and Cindy Lauper thrown into a blender and just splattered all over a wall. Like she looks like both of them at once. And then you've got th- this woman whose color palette is like that of a wild macaws. She's wearing the most aggressive lip liner I've ever seen. I feel like in a way they almost try to take a pinch of uh, influence from like a, a return of the living dead trash look, but like really like watered it down and saturated it. But like that short cropped, you know, the short cropped hair, it seems like a very simplified version of that. You know what I mean? And that's that era. It kind of lends to it. Cause these girls are supposed to be like kind of the punk scene, kind of just like, you know, kind of rebellious, hard-edged girls who like stealing shit. And they both have very distinct Cockney accents. I did not expect that. I forgot about the Cockney accents. But they come out of nowhere. And like instantly, these girls are like cackling. They're like, hey, girl, just wear the same bag. <laughs> like they sound like they're like off the set of Mary Poppins. Like they're so Cockney. Oh, and they're annoying as fuck. They they barge in, follow, and it's Isabel and Enid, and then they're followed by Ralph, the sensible American Ralph, right? Who is we find out is just like this big kid at heart, like the just the ugh. so these two girls they come in, they barge in, and they immediately just start like cussing, and the one goes over and just takes a big spoonful of the soup that Hillary made and just takes a bite of it right from the right from the soup spoon out of the pan. I mean, they're very uncouth, very uncouth. I have to state that the volume of people at this point in the game who are stumbling upon this random mansion in the middle of nowhere is rather implausible. I mean, I'm going to roll with it, but like at this point we have nearing a 10 person cast. Only two of these people actually live within this household everybody else is just wandering upon the scene and it's a, it's a bit forced but in the whole fairy tale like n- nature of the film it still works it doesn't really bother me 
one thing I also want to build off of, you you did acknowledge the, that Ralph comes into play. And this is another character here who, at first, Ralph got under my skin. However, as the film goes on again, this character becomes more and more likable, more and more endearing. And I really appreciate the fact that they played up a relationship between him and this child that was so like nurturing. Normally you would expect to see like a female in this kind of role, but this guy I think genuinely is just a good guy with a kind heart who becomes concerned about this child's well-being and they form this friendship and it seems so pure and it seems so genuine. Uh, and I really appreciate the relationship that develops between them. I think it's so innocent. I really like uh, the, the chemistry between these two. Well, Ralph immediately like shows this giant kid side to him when he sees the punch doll. He's like, oh my God, I love these punch dolls. And Gabriel picks on it, picks up on it too and makes the comment, oh, well, you like toys, do you? And Ralph's like, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of too old to, to you know, tell people that. And he's like, no, you're never too old to like toys. And the, Hillary then invites all of these random people to spend the night at their mansion. And she tells Gabriel to take them up to and show them where their rooms are going to be. So as they're going up, stay up the stairs. This is the first time that we do see Ralph and Judy interact. Judy asks Ralph if he's scared as they're walking through this dark, huge mansion up these stairs. And Ralph's like, well, no, what would I be scared of? And she's like, yeah, you're, you're right. The parents, are taken to their room. And right away, the first thing the dad says is, uh, there's only one bed. Where's the kid going to sleep? And Gabriel's like, well, she has her own room. Listen, motherfucker, these people are giving you a free goddamn bed in a house. Like, I don't care. I don't care where the fuck you're sleeping. If you're sleeping on the couch, you're appreciative. You shitty person. Exactly. And the, when Gabriel says, oh, well, she gets her own room, Rosemary's like, well, that sounds like a splendid idea. She's all excited because she doesn't have to sleep with this little kid. And Gabriel even makes the comment. He says, yeah, I knew you'd like it. And then he shuts the door. <laughs> I do want to mention, you know, when these all these people, it's really hard to figure out, like, because you mentioned the accents that these girls have and then the accents that the the old couple have. Unless you, like, really looked into it, it the, the, like where this film takes place is kind of a mystery. You know, the only thing, you know what I mean? Like, where is it? Where is this? Where's the setting for this? Is it the United States? Is it, you know, the English countryside, which the plot description says it's the English countryside, but it's just really weird to have like this hodgepodge of different like nationalities that just kind of met up randomly at this mansion in the middle of, of nowhere. So, I mean, I think, I think that also plays into the aspect of it being almost fairy tale like because you cannot pinpoint where this is at it's just like it's 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 almost like it's its own world yeah it is when when you say the english countryside the only thing that they do over the course of the film to hint towards that is they talk about the travel the fact that the mother's back in boston the fact that they need airplane tickets to get back home uh to fly all the way back that it, it's dropped here and there but it is not a major element it's really it does feel intentional making this place feel uh, kind of removed from reality because what happens is so absurd, you know? So it feels very much like they created this kind of alternate kind of fairy tale esque universe for this setting. And you do have all these intriguing characters kind of coming into play. 
it, it, it all works. It all gels, even though moments don't make sense, even though moments are kind of absurd. It all feels very consciously thought out. Well, in the we, we cut to the girls' room, the two punk girls, and they are talking very giddily about the fact that they wanted to steal Ralph's wallet and his car keys. So they're like, how, how are we going to do that now? In the meantime, Isabel knocks all these dolls off the mantle to put her boombox on there and starts playing her, her boombox. They're just making themselves right at home, these two broads. Oh, they're disrespecting the dolls. And you can tell that these dolls are none too pleased. They are, they're already planning their revenge. The dolls fall to the ground and nothing really happens, but you could just sense the... The, the just sheer rage that these dolls are feeling right now. And you know these girls are fucked. Oh, the dolls are giving them dirty looks. <laughs> it's So Gabriel is showing Ralph and Judy their rooms. And as they're walking down this, I mean, this house is fucking enormous. Like that's the one thing is this house has so many levels and so many hallways and so many nooks and crannies. It's just huge to the point where there's a scene coming up where they just are like, oh, well, she must have got lost going to look for, you know, uh, the bathroom. We'll, we'll, we'll find her in the morning. <laughs> Well, and so many things happen where, like, you would expect that people in the other rooms of the house would hear what's going on. But, like, you kind of just buy it because, like, you're right. This place is so fucking massive that uh, every room feels kind of separated from everything else, you know? When he shows Ralph his room here, Ralph is simply enchanted. Like, the childlike side that comes out of Ralph really makes his character uh, significantly more likable. And it happens pretty quick. So his character, you start to warm up to him pretty fast. Um, and he then present, proceeds to fully predict the plot of the story of the film uh, by describing how he used to believe that his toys would play on their own. Like he calls it. He calls it right off the bat as he's reminiscing about his memories with his father. Um, I just like the fact that he like is not even aware of what he's talking about being actually reality. Yeah. He says, yeah, he says he used to leave cookies under his bed for his dolls and his toys because his dad told him that at night the toys would come to life. Um, and he does say, you know, I remember every single one of my toys as that I had as a child. And Gabriel tells him, well, Ralph, they remember you too. Toys are very loyal. And that's a fact. That's, that's not foreboding. No. And what I like about this character is you're right. Just real quick is the fact that, you know, they, any other film would have made this character, a female character to bond with this little girl, because when you have an adult male, because Ralph is probably pushing 30, he's probably what early thirties at least. Oh, I thought he was older. I thought he was maybe like 40. I, I mean, I, Hey, I'm being generous. I mean, I'm going to say the guy's 35. Let's That's go there. Fair. Regardless, when you have a, a an older, an adult male, who has to form a bond with a young female child that could really walk a fine line between being really creepy or really not. Because there are moments in this film where this girl, this little girl's like in his bedroom alone, it ne- but it never ever feels like there's anything creepy or um, anything going on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's never any point in the film where you as the viewer think that this guy is up to anything other than being a genuinely good guy. Even when other characters throw that at him and accuse him, you know that this guy, they never ever give you a doubt in the fact that he's genuinely just 
trying to help. No, there's never any uncomfortable. You know, you're never uncomfortable when these two, when Ralph and Judy are on screen together, you're, there's never a sense of uncomfortableness. Even like, like I was said, when they're in his bedroom together alone and he's taken her away from her parents and leading her through this, there's never like this sense of, Ooh, Ooh, this is kind of weird uh, at all. And I think that's, I think that's very admirable that they were able to pull that off with, with this, with his performance and just the character, how the character is written. But I think it's the actor brings a lot of the childlike naivety to the character. And that really helps the whole dynamic between him and Judy feel authentic and feel sweet and feel innocent. Well, and they do a really nice job. They give him a little tidbit of backstory regarding the loss of his father. And it's brief, but I think it's really what the character needed to move forward in the direction we're talking about. He obviously has an understanding of, you know, what it's like to be a child without a parental figure at a young age. And so his journey with Judy, as it becomes clear that her parental figures are not up to par, he really genuinely, I think, becomes concerned for her well-being Uh, knowing that she is a good kid who deserves that. Um, And I think that makes him, if anything, it just makes him really just seem like a stand-up guy, like someone who, whose morals are in the right place. You know, he wants what's best for this little girl. He can very much see that her parents are pieces of shit. Uh, This next scene. I like this next scene. Hillary goes into the girl's room to give them some towels. And she makes the comment to them. She's like, the bathroom is next door. If you want to go clean that paint off your face. And they're like, it's not paint. It's makeup. And she's like, oh, and then Isabel starts just questioning this like this. Like, okay, be a little less obvious about your intentions because Isabel is like, oh, do you have anything valuable in this house? What's valuable? And she picks up one of the dolls and she's like, is this worth money? And, and Hillary's like, well, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's worth money to us or it's, it's worth value to us. And she's like, well, is it one of those and antiques? She says antiques. I mean, these girls are not the sharpest tools in the shed, Troy. <laughs> but antiques, are these antiques? Well, it's all with that Cockney accent. She's like, are these antiques? Like, it's, it's such a very pronounced Cockney accent. And Hillary's like, you mean antiques? <laughs> Hillary is over this shit. <laughs> she is like- I, I like this scene too, Troy, because I think it shows a really fun dynamic between these three characters, the two girls who are, you know, they're, they're very mocking and cutting towards Hillary, but it's pretty clear that Hillary kind of has the best on them and they just don't know it. And because of that, the way they approach this, Hillary never gets phased. She never gets angry. She's never offended, but there's a mischief, uh, mischievous kind of nature to the way she delivers some of her dialogue. It's very foreboding, a word I like to use a lot, but this is very intentionally foreboding in the sense that she even says, as she's leaving, she says, don't let the bed bugs bite. And it's clear that she knows that something's going to fucking bite. And she's kind of excited for it because she knows these girls are pieces of shit. They even call her an antique. <laughs> I mean, these these girls are just the most rude, obnoxious fucking bitches. 
I mean, you you have this sweet old couple going out of their way to show you hospitality, and they're like, "Can we leave a radio on?" Well, and, I can't do it. And then, that was my. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, Troy, <laughs> you've you've nailed it. No, but then I I mean, honestly, they have a conversation amongst themselves where the two of them are talking about something, and it's. It's so cockney. I can't understand most of what they're saying. I'm going to be honest. These gals are rambling about how they're up to mischief and how they're going to steal things. And I really got maybe three or four words from Miss Bundy Bailey. But overall, it's it's really hard to decipher some of the stuff they say because the cockney accents are so thick. Not saying they don't feel natural at times and not saying their acting is bad. It's just the characters are here are very much at times larger than life. And so it's it's kind of hard to follow some of their dialogue. The basic the basis of their dialogue that they have after Hillary leaves is that Isabel tells Enid she wants to go steal. She's going to go out and steal valuables from the house because she's like they have so much stuff here that's worth money. So she, she wants and Enid actually doesn't really want to do it. She's like, no, they're old. They could be our grandparents. And Isabel's like, well, they're not, and they're probably going to be dead soon anyway, so it doesn't matter. So how about you stay in the room, listen to the radio, so that if anybody comes in, you can tell. And I'm going to go swipe stuff. And Enid's like, okay. And that's that's basically what happens. And now you cut to a scene with Rosemary and David in bed drinking wine. And David's like, you know what? When we get out of here, we're gonna ta- I'm going to ship that kid back to her mother in Boston, and we're going to go on our own little vacation. He's like... We're rich. We're in the prime of our lives. And she's like, no, I'm rich. And they're drinking this wine this nice old couple gave him. And all she can say is this wine tastes musty. And does she not have hair, Troy? <laughs> I mean, at this point, like, what is with the, the all of the head wraps? We eventually learn she does have hair. But at, up to this point, like, this is ensemble number two involving a head wrap. I mean, I didn't know this was really a staple of fashion at this point in in culture, but here we are, donning head wraps left and right. Um, she's so unlikable, but so is he. Their whole plot is so cruel. Um, it really makes you want to see them suffer. Every scene you get with them, more and more, you want to see these two uh, get their just desserts. And same, honestly, same with, with Isabel. I will say that at least Ingrid kind of becomes a little bit more likable as things go on. Uh, you feel a bit more f- for her. And I think this scene that you just mentioned between the two girls where she seems to be the one that has a little bit more of a conscience, uh, that comes into play a bit. And that's why I think she makes it a little bit longer, you know? Yeah, because now we get Isabel. She's out searching the house. And as she's walking down the hallway, we hear all this like laughter, this childlike laughter, you know, as she's walking down this dark hallway <laughs> and little voices, you know, yipping, yapping back and forth to each other. It cuts to then Judy in bed reading Mr. Punch, Hansel and Gretel. Again, they couldn't have picked a better book, eh? She's thirsty. So she says, she's asked Mr. Punch, are you thirsty too? And it's real cute because she does as she talks for him. Something a kid would do, right? I mean, it's very childlike. She's like, Mr. Punch, you want to go get uh, something to drink with me? And she actually makes his little mouth move. Or she's like, he's like, yes, I do, Judy. So she gets out of bed to take Mr. Punch to go get something to drink. Back to Isabel. She's found a room that looks like a jackpot. This room is full of like valuables. It's full like music boxes, coins, everything. And she's going through all this stuff just in awe at all this valuable stuff she's finding. 
when this music box starts to play that's on a mantle. At first, it's just very innocent. It just starts playing. So she goes to shut it. She goes back to getting her all these valuables and it starts to play again. So she goes and shuts it a second time. She goes back to search the room and the fucking music box is open again playing. Okay, right. At that point, I would be gone. I'd be like, okay, that's that's a sign. But no, she stays in there. She stays in there. She hears a noise and she goes to investigate it. And she's like, she's like walking through the room. The music box goes off for the fourth time. But all of a sudden she's pulled down to the fucking floor and dragged. These dolls are strong. They drag her across the floor. And in our first major death scene, we see that she is being grabbed by both her arms while she is rammed into the wall. Violently, head first, swung into the wall. Not once, not twice, three times until her head is a bloody, pulpy mess. Okay, these must be the strongest dolls in the world. I was going to say, these fucking things are like He-Man. The physics, they, the physics just don't work for me. Unless these dolls are nailed into the floor or fused to the ground in some way. Uh, it just, could she not lift her arms? Could she not just toss them aside? That being said, I mean, the buildup to this is quite nice. I got to say, like what you're saying with the whole music box, there's also these really nice little intercuts of the dolls starting to smirk and look around and look all maniacal. And it's very creepy. And all of the dolls on the shelf around the music box, the the last time she ter- looks over to the music box to see what's going on, the dolls have all left the, the mantle. They're no longer there. Only the music box is there. So... She's not clearly picking up on it because she's a thief and she's distracted with her theft. But the dolls are obviously like moving around now. They've they've taken to the streets. The dolls are now out for vengeance and they are plotting. And so, yeah, I like the, the little detail of the shelf being empty uh, and only the music box being there alone. It's a very well done, suspenseful little scene. If you're going to be honest, it's, it's really well done. Uh, but they drag her out into the hallway just as Judy is walking through the hallway to get her, her drink. Uh, and she sees fucking Isabel on the floor, all bloody. Isabel sees her, reaches her hand up to try to get Judy to, to help her. And all of a sudden she's pulled down the hallway violently around the corner as Judy just sits there watching wide eyed at what just happened. Yeah, I'll say that the, the the one thing about this that doesn't totally land for me is the actual impacts against the wall themselves. If anything's a little lame, it's the the shots of her head being brought into the camera and then slowly pulled back. It's lacking a little bit of the oomph I would like to see from a moment like this. But I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna you know hold my complaints and and acknowledge that overall the scene works very well as a moment. There is some nice dread established. It takes its time. It builds some suspense. And that final reveal with with Judy, that whole moment as she watches her get dragged away is actually quite creepy. So it ends on a strong note. Yeah. It's not the strongest death in the in the movie by any means. And at this point, we still don't really see the dolls doing the the dirty work, right? It's very careful about actually showing the dolls doing this. It's not until the next death scene that we see them in like full, like 
attack mode and it's really fucking creepy that scene well and i think one thing i would have liked if anything i'm going to say it right now is because they do quite when the dolls are on camera and you actually see them in their glory claymation or not i mean it's quite quite effective i would have been pretty okay honestly if they just gave me full doll right off the bat and showed the dolls up to their mischief in this sequence i get what they're doing they're trying to build it up to like the surprise factor of when you finally get the reveal, it feels that much more of an oomph, but honestly it looks so good. It's such a fun aspect of the film. I wouldn't have complained if I had a little more doll action. Well, Judy does the right thing. I mean, this is a smart little girl. She runs into her dad in Rosemary's room to tell them that she saw one of the girls get dragged off by what she thinks are elves. She's calling them elves at first because she, that's that's she's a kid that's what she's going to assume the dad does not believe her and judy is very adamant dad please come and come and see there's there's blood in the hall what does this fucker do he raises his hand he's like i'm sick of you lying you little bitch and he raises her hand to hit her this is when rosemary grabs his hand and she's like uh uh uh, you'll pay more in child support he's like i don't care she grabs his hand again she's like my money and he's like oh and then he basically is like, you are a fucking little lying bitch. I'm so tired of you. Get the fuck out of here. And oh, my God, they're so and, and Judy's like just standing there. And she's like, I'm trying to tell you. And Rosemary's like, listen here, you little bitch. He might not, he might not be able to slap you, but I can. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. She like one ups him. And, and when it comes to being just how shitty they can be, she says, like, if I could, if he could, he would. And I will. Like, she does threaten her with physical Oh, violence. she does. And Judy's like, uh, okay, I'm sorry, ma'am. And she leaves. I mean, well, first, I got to point out one line out of Judy. I just got to say it. Judy comes busting into the room. And they're like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she's like, well, I was about to get a glass of water with punch. And, like, and they're like, you were going to drink punch? She's like, no, Mr. Punch. Um, but, like, the way she says it is, like, it, you you hit on this earlier. She's such like a childlike character in how she's played. She's so innocent, and even her inflections are so like what I would picture a child saying, how I would picture them acting. And there's it's such a, like a specific little moment, but the way she says it, like I was gonna get some water with punch, like it's just it, the way she emphasizes it. It's so cute. It really just adds to her likability. Well, since her parents didn't believe her or wouldn't get off their lazy asses to to go and look and check out what she's saying, she goes into Ralph's room. And Ralph, we see before Judy gets into his room, has been pretty scared. There's this like giant like clown doll, clown slash bear sitting at the foot of his bed, very reminiscent of Poltergeist. And he's making, you know, comments towards it and it's like, oh, I'm just going to go to sleep, Mr. Clown. Just leave me alone. So he turns around and goes to sleep and all of a sudden something grabs his foot from the end of the bed he screams and it is judy there in his bedroom telling him i just saw one of your friends get dragged away and he's like no no it's probably your imagination it's not it's laid out and you know you probably were just having a dream he's like go back to sleep you know this is a rough night the storms probably got to you and she's like oh okay and as she's starting to walk away he sees her slippers are covered with blood. He's like, what is that? And she's like, he's like, is that blood? And she's like, yeah, it got pretty bloody. (laughs) He's like, can you show me where it happened? And she says, yeah. So they go to the hallway 
And they, they continue to walk down this maze of a hallway, this, this huge house, looking for where this girl was dragged away. Along the way, Judy does drop Miss, Mr. Punch on the floor and gets kind of separated from Ralph. And she goes the opposite direction. And he's continuing. He gets to a door. Uh, he gets frantic when she when he realizes Judy isn't with him. And as he gets to this door, she opens it and hits him in the face with it. And she's like, there's nothing in here. It's so cute. Their chemistry is so cute. And again, like, and not to hit on it too much, but you know, based off my instinct, I really wanted to find a reason to think that their relationship should be weird on camera. But it's just so pure. And he's so genuine and goofy. Uh, and childlike, and we've hit on these things about this character, but it really keeps evolving. The more you see them together, the more you f- you see kind of how they relate. I think that's a big thing here, too, is these characters find a strange middle ground where they really relate to one another, and it becomes so sweet. And I like that right off the bat, like even against his instinct, he does choose to support her and, and follow her. And, you know, and then in turn protect her. Well, I mean, I think seeing the blood, her slippers covered in blood definitely would let him know something was up. And as they, after she hits him in the door with the door and they continue down the hallway, they do find that trail of blood that leads up to the attic, you know, in in good horror movie fashion, instead of just being like, okay, let's get the fuck out of here. He's like, nope, I'm going to go up there and, and check things out. You stay here. And I like, she says, why do I have to stay here? I've been in an attic before. He's like, oh yeah. Okay. Come on. Yeah. I like that. She's the brave one in that scenario. Yeah. 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 They take, so they go up to the attic. It's very dark. It's thundering out and we're getting flashes of light through, through the lightning and they go up and they find all this like weird shit. And I do like that when Ralph is looking at something, a flash of lightning keeps igniting the, the attic and behind him, we see if like a figure sitting there and we find out who it is here in a little bit, but I just think it's really creepy because they don't see it as they're leaving. Ralph trips over some dolls and tumbles down the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. That whole little moment where you don't see her in the background is I found very creepy because it's one I love moments where it's like, if only they would have looked if only they would have turned slightly in a different way, the whole pattern of the story would have changed. It's similar to last week's episode with Angel, the opening sequence with Crystal in the alley with the two hookers, where if the two hookers would have just turned at the wrong time, they would have seen something that would have completely changed the whole pattern of the film. So I really like this little moment because you just see that silhouette in the background just trembling. You see the hands moving, um, trying to get their attention. And they were completely oblivious to it. Uh, But the moment when he trips, I find it interesting because it's clear that he trips over dolls that were not there prior. And he even at one point notices what it turns out to be a bite on his ankle. So it's clear that one of these dolls actually may have attacked him and caused him to fall down the staircase. Yeah. So they, after he falls down the stairs, they go running to pound on Enid's door to get her to come out. But instead, Dave comes out with Rosemary. He's like, what the hell are you doing? And this is the whole scene where it becomes like they are very accusatory towards Ralph because Enid comes out. She sees that he's covered in blood and she immediately's like, you did something to Isabel. You were smitten with her from the moment you picked us up and you wanted her and you tried to do something with her and she did. And what did you do? You're covered in blood. 
And Dave noticed this and he immediately is like, get the fuck away from my daughter. He's like, hey, I did not do anything. I've been in my room. And Judy's like, yeah, he's been in his room. Dave's like, no, Judy, get over here. You're, you're coming. You're staying in our room tonight. You get the hell out of here. Judy's like, no, I want to stay with Ralph. He's my friend. And Dave's like, oh, I bet he is. And he grabs Judy to get her to come into the room. But she takes off running. And along the way, drops Mr. Punch. So Dave has no choice to run after her. And as he does, he finds the punch doll. And Judy's nowhere to be seen. So he's like, Judy, you get out here. I'm going to tear this doll to shreds. And of course, she doesn't come out. So he tries to tear poor Mr. Punch apart. But it doesn't work. He won't rip. So he takes a candle and starts to burn poor Mr. Punch's face. But he quits because the hot wax, hot plastic drops on his foot. And he burns himself and he drops the doll and the doll scurries off. Um, I, I love this one little shot. It's it's so simple. They clearly just like re- dropped the doll and rewound it. But there's a scene where David tosses the doll and it like rolls and lands perfectly seated in the chair across from him. And it's a strange little trick because he's like, obviously he he's clearly like put off by the doll and it seems off, but it's not enough to get him to believe that the thing is alive. Uh, however, every time he tries to harm it, it always kind of gets the best of him without fully cluing him into exactly what's going on. So even when the doll scurries away, like he becomes distracted with the wax looks away when he looks back, the doll is gone. So it does add this great like element of mystery where there's still characters who are st- still figuring out what's happening and that does add to the fun factor still yeah and then when ralph runs into gabriel right after this moment too he tells gabriel about the missing girl and this is when gabriel uh is like oh did you see the 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 mess in the hallway and on the carpet and ralph's like yeah we we need to find her i don't know what happened and gabriel's like well don't tell her earlier about it because she'll be really upset and he basically goes on to tell ralph that he spilled red paint all over the floor in the hallway insinuating that that's what ralph and judy have seen is the red paint because he was going to paint the doll's cheeks to touch their cheeks up and of course ralph's like oh okay but the girl's still missing. And this is when Gabriel's like, well, no, she probably just got lost. If she's not there in the morning, we'll go look for her. I'm like, how do you get lost? And this house is just portrayed to be just enormous, like never ending labyrinth of rooms. I like that one aspect of the elderly characters is they like, there are multiple points in the film where they provide like an explanation for something. Um, and to them, it seems like a, a reasonable explanation and they're playing it completely sincere. But what they're saying to the person who's listening, like, it's so clear that they're lying. Like this whole thing with the red paint, it's very clear that Ralph is like, okay, red paint all over the floors. Like, it, where is the girl, though? Like, it still hasn't answered all my questions, but I'm going to go along with it just because you're very creepy and unsettling. And it just it's, it's funny that they literally just, like, use the discomfort factor to get people to, like, agree with them or appease people, like, against their questions, you know? And it's obvious it's not red paint. I mean, uh, yeah, so... Enid is in her room and she's like freaking out because she thinks she thinks Ralph did something to her when all of a sudden we hear the boom box smash on the floor and we look up and the dolls are all back up on the mantle staring at her, which again, I thought was a super creepy 
little, just, I mean, subtle moment. In the meantime, Judy goes in the kitchen and finds Ralph wiping what he still calls blood. He knows it's not red paint because she's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm wiping the blood off my pants. So now all of a sudden, Mr. Punch is sitting in the in the kitchen chair. He made it to the kitchen. So Judy picks him up um, and asks Ralph, what do you think we should do? And he's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, what do you think we should do about the longest night in the world? And he's like, Judy, I, I don't know. I really wish I knew what you meant. And suddenly Punch, the doll, answers and says, you know, Ralph, deep down, you know. I like that, like, in the midst of this guy potentially not really being clued into what's happening. And, like, this could have been something where the doll totally didn't have to reveal itself and could have kept the whole thing an ongoing mystery. I like that the doll just opts to be like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, yeah. Yes. Yep. I am sentient and I am absolutely <laughs> killing people. Yeah. I mean, it's, I thought it was a really effective little moment, you know, and it gives, like I said, it gives the, the, the punch doll, the Mr. Punch doll quite the personality and you really get to like, I, I like the punch doll. I mean, there's just something about him. It's very, he's very charismatic. He's very like, uh, he's a jokester, you know, very clever. He is. The, now it, we get, Rosemary laying in her bed, you know, with her headscarf on when all of a sudden, I mean, this scene happens so quickly. There's no buildup to it or anything. She's laying there and all of a sudden we, we hear laughing and she sees things moving under her covers and she lifts the sheets up and all these fucking dolls are on the bed by her legs and they start attacking her with, I mean, they have little, they have little doll sized knives, little doll sized hammers, doll size saws and they are just going to town on her stabbing her she's getting up trying to get away from him one like starts sawing her her ankle it's one of the best scenes in the fucking film let's just get it out there right now it, it is, is just it is chaos she is suddenly thrust in the situation where she has to fight off what is literally an army of dolls and they they are pulling out all the stops they're biting cutting like you said they're sawing hammering like and they keep going in for like low blows like hammer to the back of the head knife into the shoulder and and she barely has a chance to even like really like get her footing she does manage to like run from the room but she goes into another room that's filled with significantly more dolls and they're all sentient too and they're all turning their attention to her they start injuring her further sawing through her ankle and uh, then she wanders into the hallway and she realizes she's just completely surrounded by angry, vengeful, and violent dolls. And as she's standing there, there's two uh, two two dolls start sawing her shin with a hacksaw, which that shit would be painful. Oh, so yeah. she tries to run to the end of the hallway and they're literally blocking the stairwell. They're blocking the end of the hallway. Uh, this is the one moment of this whole scene I did not really like because it's just so awkward. What she ends up doing is she jumps out the second story window to get away from them, yeah. which uh, to me just did not make a lot of sense. Like, you know, you're, you know, you're on the second floor, you know, it's not going to end well. I think what it's, I mean, I think when they show, I feel like when they show claymation in this film, it's phenomenal, but it's because they use it to, 
pretty sparingly. Like, altogether, there's only so many shots of dolls actually in the midst of motion. A lot of the times, they're ominously looking out of their corners of their eyes, smirking. But so when you do actually get moments of pure motion, it's really well done. But I think that they're able to put time into it because they didn't overload the film with it. So what I take away from this film is they have her jump out the window, which is very much a self-induced death, basically. And and I think it's, they, they do that in order to have more control over what happens to her. Or I, I guess, let me reword that, not even more control. They leave it like a vague, open-ended death for a reveal, you know? So I th- yeah, I think they show what they've got. They make it look good while they have it, but they don't. You don't see her like get completely gutted by these things or anything because you just see a limited amount of them actually in motion. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's it's a combination of claymation, uh, puppetry. I mean, I think the the dolls in motion and everything look really good, especially for the eighties. Oh, they're they're great. It's yeah. one of the standout aspects of the movie. Oh yeah. I mean, t- these days they they just CGI everything. I mean, this is real puppetry, real claymation. It it looks very good and it, it just makes these dolls that much more creepy and sinister. Their movements and their facial expressions and whatnot. So yeah, Rosemary's jumped out the window and now Enid is in the hallway looking for Isabel. And there's this scene where she sees Hillary come out of a bedroom pushing a baby carriage. So she kind of like ducks in a little cranny and Hillary is singing a nice lullaby to whatever's in this baby carriage. And as she goes by, Enid is able to look inside and see that it's a doll. And once Enid, once uh, Hillary passes, Enid continues down the hallway, sees the blood path, goes up to the attic. And as she's up there, she hears Isabel's voice telling her, Go back. Again, very creepy. This whole scene in the attic is creepy. Yeah, she she goes more deeper into the attic and she sees Isabel, like her figure sitting against the wall on the floor. And as she approaches, all Isabel says again is, Go back. Enid lights her candle and, and show and you know lights the scene with the candle flame, and we see that Isabel is now basically her whole face has turned into a doll and the two doll eyeballs fall out of her eye sockets. And so she has to reach down and pick them up. And when she picks them up, she holds them out in front of her. And it's very much the image that's on the poster art for this film. What's really creepy about this is while you see characters get killed off pretty violently, um, it's never really like implied that, this character actually sees her death because every time you see her after this, or I'm sorry, every time you see her after she's initially dispatched, she's still moving. She's still conscious. So when you get this reveal, it's just more of like a cruel torture. They have this, you know, her face is now like a China doll head. Her eyes are now removed, um, but she's still moving about. So it's very, very strange, very creepy, very interesting um, and, and makes for a great setup for what's about to happen. Yeah. As she screams to back away, she gets lassoed around the arm and we look up and we see that it's a cowboy. The cowboy doll has lassoed her with his little lasso rope, but she is smart. She sets the little fucker on fire. Oh, this broad man. Yeah. She, you know, she fights pretty well for a few minutes. She puts up quite a fucking fight for a few minutes and then she kind of like gives up. Uh, but yeah, she sets him on fire and he's like, Rah! 
<laughs> crying out. And then she looks down and there's all the, uh, these other dolls around her attacking her and stabbing her. And she like kicks one of them and breaks its head open. And this is the first time we see like they are inside of their porcelain heads are like skulls green little like green demon little elfin skulls so really this whole time judy's been right they are very much little elves they look very similar to the design from gremlins yes yes but the, yeah and they there's they, so these dolls inside these dolls are like skeletons like actual like yeah I, what do you even say like they have skull like demons i don't know what they are elves imps it, it adds such a great like additional layer to the threat factor though because not only are the dolls terrifying but then when they like break open you get some really great some of the best effects in the film i would say are these reveal moments where you see the green creatures underneath like there is something more to these things than we even already thought i really welcomed this extra layer of 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 you know malevolent force whatever it may be i like that they went even more fantastical with it yeah well she takes off her belt and starts swinging it at all of these dolls hitting them in the heads and knocking breaking the porcelain so that we're seeing these green skulls as they're screaming in agony and bubbling as they're dying and she gets she's able to get out of the attic by wielding this belt as a as a weapon and she runs downstairs and is met with a row of little wooden soldiers just these innocent looking little tiny little wooden soldiers the most innocent looking things you've in the entire movie right and they start playing their little drum tune do 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 playing their little drums and all of a sudden they raise their little guns and shoot her it's so much more like violent than i anticipated it would be with those tiny little guns the t- the guns are like no no bigger than what a toothpick but they sure fire some pretty powerful bullets because they come out of her back. They go through her front and come out of her back and leave pretty decent sized holes. Well, and then they do another round uh-huh. like this girl ain't going nowhere. Yeah. They, they, they shoot her down and she drops to the ground. And the last thing she sees as she's bleeding out is her, uh, her lighter go out. Yeah. That was a, that was a really cool little effect as well. Uh, but yeah, she, Drops to the floor, blood comes out of her mouth, and we watch her basically die with her eyes open. It kind of reminded me of Janet Lee in the shower at the end of the shower scene in Psycho. So now David gets into bed with Rosemary, who is covered up with the sheets. These are some strong fucking dolls because they were able to carry her back up from the outside all the way back up to the second floor to put her back in bed. Troy, there's also like well over a hundred of them. Well, I mean, but who do you would nobody saw the hundred dolls carrying this woman up? <laughs> who is there to see it? I don't than, know. Who Ralph, is, who is, Ralph just wanders about. Can you imagine if like the, if Judy just like walked around the corner to find like an army of dolls <laughs> carrying a body. processionally like in a procession carrying this body? Yeah. I wonder how that would have turned out. <laughs> so he's talking to her, trying to have, trying to get some sexy time with her. And as we see, because he can't see, because it's the facing in the camera, there's this like little blood spot on the sheet that's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's as he's like talking to her, he smells something. It's either him or her. I don't know what he smells, but he's like, well, I got to go take a shower. So he gets up to go take a shower, and he's like, uh, yeah, don't get up. Ralph and Judy find 
yet another closet filled with dolls. Like the volume of dolls, again, mind-boggling how many dolls are in this goddamn fucking house. But you find another closet with dolls, and at first they're a trance, but it's quickly revealed. It's it's like made clear to them that they are alive. They reveal themselves. And uh, Ralph is obviously, like, terrified. Like, it makes sense to me why he responds the way he does. Because uh, he begins to stomp on the dolls. And the dolls are none too pleased with this. Well, yeah. I mean, you have to keep in mind, you know, Ralph is an adult. So despite his childlike, you know, personality throughout the film, he's still a rational adult. So while Judy is not too afraid or concerned or taken aback by the fact that these dolls are alive because she's a child and to her, you know, think about when we were children, every, every little kid thinks their dolls are alive or they have imaginary friends. So to her, it wasn't a big issue, but this is an adult man. This is a 35, 40 year old man. If, if it was me, you, anybody, and we saw these dolls stand up and start turning their heads and standing around us. Yes, we would be fucking freaked out. So I can't really, um, blame him for what he does i mean i would think i would think i would handle it a little bit better instead of just start sm trying to smash the dolls with my feet but he literally starts smashing them and kicking them and yeah they are not happy and they uh, literally attack him to the point of pulling him down to the ground and start stabbing him i mean and hitting him with their little hammers and shit until judy is like it's really terrifying visual it is because you think he's gonna die i mean these dolls are like they're all over him. Hundreds of them. They're out for blood. They're vengeful. Until, They're so angry. Until Judy yells at them to leave him alone. Leave him alone. Leave my friend alone. And then she's like, you are bad dollies. And then they all stop and kind of like look at her. I love this whole development that like the dolls can be reasoned with. Like you never, you never get this within the genre where there's like a way that like you can like, I don't know, convince someone to not kill somebody or what have you. Like the dolls are all, all fully prepared to kill this guy. And then she steps in and I love that she's the, the power figure here that the dolls respond to her for some reason. I mean, obviously I'm assuming because she's a child and she, you know, sees them for what they are and she's never questioned it, I'm guessing. But um, I, I like that they like actually like listen to her and end up like agreeing to her demands. I like the I like the little scene where they're all having like their little meeting and they're like whispering and like they keep looking over at <laughs> they keep looking over at Ralph and and Judy and they're like <laughs> and Ralph's like, well, what do we do? And she's like, we just got to wait till they make a decision about what to do with us. And they're like, and they're all giving them side eye and stuff. It's so funny. It's so cute. It's the, it's really like the aspect of the personality within this film that does it a lot of favors. I would say, I, I think it, it's one of the more um, endearing traits of this film is when they allow the film to be a little more absurd, uh, be a little more uh, like tap into again, it's fantastical elements. Back upstairs, Dave gets out of the shower finally. And he, he gets in bed again and he's trying to kiss her. And he's like, please, mommy, please, mommy, let daddy kiss you. Don't punish daddy like this. Let daddy kiss you. And as we see from the perspective of the as the audience, we see the, the front sheet is now covered in blood, but he can't see it. So he's like, why, why are you trying to punish daddy? So he like reaches over to pull the sheet off of her and we get a pretty gnarly dead body reveal. She's laying there with her eyeball literally hanging out of her eye by a str string of flesh. She's all 
mangled. And as he tries to like jump back, she somehow rolls over on top of him. <laughs> and it's just this ridiculous scene where she's like holding on to him and he's trying to get her off of him. One thing that's intriguing to me here, and, and I, tell me if you agree, but it does seem to me almost that while people here are horribly injured, I don't know if anyone is actually technically killed, considering what the outcome of the film is. Um, because obviously we have Isabel who is now like turning into a doll, but she's still conscious, you know, then we have the whole shooting sequence with Ingrid where you see her fall to the ground. She's been shot multiple times. However, like the last thing you see of her is her eyes blinking as she's looking at the lighter go out. Now you've got this whole moment where obviously it's very clear that Rosemary has been horribly injured, but you have this whole moment where it looks almost as though she reaches and tries to grab him. Like she's still like maybe hanging on to her last bit of life and he struggles with her and, and, you know, and eventually leaves her and runs off. But I wonder if they almost like injure people to the point where they're, you know, so gravely injured that they can then do what they plot to do with them, which is, you know, revealed at the end of the film. That's a good point. I didn't, you know what? I honestly did not think about that um, at all. I mean, I know what the outcome is, what happens to all of them, but I just, I didn't think I, that's a really good point, but we will discuss that here in a few minutes as we get to the end of the film. So he automatically thinks that Ralph did this. So he breaks a table and gets the tape to get the table leg. And he's like, I'll kill him. And he runs out of the room to go confront Ralph. And in the meantime, downstairs, the dolls have decided to let Judy and Ralph out of the room. They open the door so that they can leave. As they're leaving, Dave immediately comes downstairs and attacks Ralph with that fucking table leg and starts beating the shit out of him. And there's this like funny little scene real quick where Ralph, to defend himself, picks up one of the dolls and is going to throw it at Dave, but the doll cries out. It's like, and he like hugs it instead. Yeah. I I love that moment. Like I, I had that note very specifically like starred, like it's like, like it's like, it cries out like, (laughs) and, uh, and he like listens, he like puts it down. It's so funny, but this is a whole brawl. I mean, between Ralph and, um, Dave, Dave is beating the shit out of him. Ralph does get a good punch in, but Dave knocks him down. And uh, Judy is like yelling, for her dad to stop and she even says i don't know why you're doing this you need to leave my friend alone he's way nicer to me than you ever have been which hey this little girl good for her for speaking up right dave is able to knock uh ralph to the ground and as he's getting ready to hit him again judy runs up to him to tell him to stop and like grabs his hand and what does he do this is her father he backhands a little bitch and she flies across the (laughs) flies across the floor he knocks her out as if you didn't want this fucker to like suffer <sighs> prior to this moment now you're like oh bring it on exactly because we've become so invested in this little judy girl i mean she's just a sweet little innocent thing and she's been right the entire movie i mean this isn't some annoying little kid that's making shit up i mean that she's been 100 right but he knocks her out and as he's getting ready then to give his final what looks like death blow to ralph he raises this wooden table leg above him a a knife literally is thrown into his hand and we hear a giggling and he screams pulls the knife out and we look over and it's fucking mr punch i love that mr punch is like the final like the, the final boss in this big showdown 
because he this whole time you've been kind of wanting to see just what he's capable of. And this final little moment where he's like scuttling around, waddling all over the place, throwing knives and stabbing him and everything. It, it, it's a really fun, fun scene. I really enjoy this. And I also like that while it's unfortunate, I am not happy that he, you know, hit Judy and knocked her out. I appreciate that, like, she doesn't have to watch what happens to her father. You know what I mean? Like, she's now kind of removed from the scenario, as is Ralph. And you actually see them physically removed from the scene. Oh, yeah. The doll- the dolls pull them away to safety because then she doesn't have to see what happens to Punch either. There is, I mean, but there's a quite a little extensive brawl between Dave and uh, Dave and Mr. Punch. I mean, they're going at it. Punch pulls out another dagger and throws it at Dave. It hits him in the shoulder. And as he's pulling the uh, the knife out, we hear a we hear a drill start. We look over and fucking little Mister Punch has a drill, an electric drill, and he's like <laughs> laughing maniacally. But Dave does notice that the drill is plugged in to a cord, an extension cord that's right below his feet. So he's uh, reaches down and unplugs the cord, and then yanks the cord so that Punch flies off the shelf and lands at his feet. And he picks up this big wooden mallet that he found. And as Mr. Punch is sitting there, like breathing back and forth saying, no, 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 no. He smashes poor Mr. Punch's head with the mallet. Yeah. I was shocked that Mr. Punch didn't get a little more time. I, I, I feel like, you know, he's definitely presented to be the focal doll in this scenario. And I really enjoyed him. And I, I wish I would have gotten to see a little bit more of him. Though I will say this final showdown for as long as it goes on is quite enjoyable and well done. Uh, the whole bit with the drill, I really wish that he actually would have gotten to, I don't know, drill at this fucker's head or something, you know, put it to use. But overall, I really can't complain. Aside from just wanting more for my own selfish reasons, it's really a, a really fun finale. And it is a bummer when when Punch gets defeated because... Again, everyone who's being killed off or hurt are all people who prove themselves to be really shitty. And especially David in this final scene really makes it clear that he's just a bag of shit. So I want to see him suffer. You know, I do want to see him uh, have to suffer for what he's done to his daughter over the last you know, evening. And one thing that really irks me, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but... um. You know, it, it's pretty clear that she's never been wrong about this the whole time. Um, she's only been telling the truth. And he could have had a moment there where he realized that and reconciled that and acknowledged the fact that she was correct. And he never does. He still continues to turn on her. And it's like, you know, go fuck you, dude. Fuck you. I hope this doll guts. Yeah, it, he becomes very unhinged. And that is that is you're 100 percent right. That is the moment where I thought maybe maybe when Mr. When he sees that Mr. Punch is alive and is, you know, trying to kill him, that he would be like, oh, my God, my daughter was right. I should find her where she at and let's get the fuck out of here. Nope. Nope. He just continues to fight and then when this all this commotion causes gabriel and hillary to come down into the workroom and gabriel's like dave you made a mess down here and hillary's like yes look what you've done to mr punch and instead of like being you know anything he's like yeah and i'll do the same to you you witch and they look at each other hillary and gabriel look at each other and just start laughing and he's like and she's like oh you figured it out 
And this is where we get this little spiel about, you know, they, they give everyone a chance. Everyone that shows up at their home, they give it a sporting chance to some take the chance and, and, and are saved can, can see what's going on and appreciate it. Others, he says, others like you, you have to start over and play a different role in this big game. And Dave starts like going into like painful convulsions. And I really, when I saw this again, I kind of forgot that this happened, honestly. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is so freaking cool. It's so well done. What ends up happening is they, Gabriel and Hillary are basically witches of some sort. And they have the power to make these dolls come to life with this, with the magic. and. Ultimately, what they have the power to do is turn humans who have committed crimes or are bad people and haven't seen the light based on their experience at this house with all these dolls, they turn them into dolls. So we get this really cool, albeit short, I I wanted more, it's really short, transformation scene where Dave is literally turned into a Mr. Punch doll where his face is expanding. It's almost like a very, 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 very short, mild American and werewolf transformation. It's so, so like fun. You, you, it's yeah, so fun. You see his yeah. face and he's like a- agony. His hands are like extending and he just turns into a Mr. Punch doll until he literally shrinks down to the size of a doll and is on the floor breathing back and forth. And all they do is pick him up and they're like, oh, Dave. Mr. Punch now, Mr. Mischievous Punch. Well, you do look spiffier in your more contemporary clothing, which I honestly, I like his, I like the little pajama ensemble he has on. And they put his little hat back on him. And that's that. This moment and this finale um, feels so deserved. And it really is a great example of a, of a character getting proper comeuppance. Um, for multiple reasons. First of all, I love that they straightforward just shame him for his bad parenting. Like they just call him on his shit. They tell him that he's a shit person, that he had a chance to do better and that he failed. And then it's followed up by this phenomenal sequence of, of really great practical effects. There's one shot that, that catches my eye weird. It's the shot of him shrinking at last shot of him shrinking to the final size of being the doll. It's very green screened, but like I'm, I'm going to give it a pass because of the era. I'm going to give it a pass because everything else about the sequence is so great. Uh, and the prosthetic work is really, really phenomenal. Um, and it's just such a welcome ending to this character because he's progressively just been worse and worse as the movie goes on. He's been so shitty to his daughter you really wanted this to happen. You know, I I agree, although I really just wanted the character to die. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he now gets to live as a doll <laughs> is kind of disappointing. Uh, but it is a it was a very satisfying scene to watch this guy wreathe in agony as he's turned into this little plastic doll. Uh, the next morning, Ralph wakes up. He's in different he's in dressed in his nice clothes and he's on the couch in the living room, he wakes up, he looks around, and he's like, the dolls, the killer dolls, he screams. And then Judy wakes up, and they look around, and, and Gabriel's there with Hillary. They're like, oh, it's about time you guys woke up. And Gabriel goes into the story that he says that they, uh, Ralph and Judy, went missing last night. 
and they thought that they were outside. So they went and looked for him outside. And he's like, oh, by, by the way, I got your car unstuck. But we didn't find you outside. So we came back inside. And, and I, what ended up happening is I found you guys unconscious in our storage room. Basically telling them that everything that happened was a dream. Okay, I, I I love this movie, but I am sorry, I'm not buying it. I poss I can't possibly, possibly, in any way, find this excuse that they provide to be something that I would find to be a reasonable outcome after what happened. Because they basically convince Ralph and Judy. That this letter that is left, it was written, apparently was written by David, stating that he and Rosemary have abandoned the child and moved to another country. And, like, they're supposed to just buy it. And I'd be like, okay, so I'll buy that it's crazy for me to think these dolls were alive. I'll get it. But the fact that four people are now missing as an outcome of this, I I still am going to think that the fucking dolls were real. That that really happened. I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to lean into that. Well, I mean, it's I think it's heavily insinuated that Ralph does think it really happened. Be, uh, Judy does, yeah, because J- Judy asks where her dad is, and Gabriel takes out a note that David supposedly wrote that says that yeah, they're abandoning her, they're moving to Europe, and they're changing their names. And then Ralph's like, "Well, what about the two girls?" And Gabriel pulls a note out again. He's like, "Oh yeah." Oh, and P.S. I took the two girls with us, and and Ralph's like, "Come on, give me, let me see that note." And before he could see it, Gabriel tosses it in the fire. He tells Ralph that he needs to take uh, Judy back to Boston to be with her mom, and Ralph's like, "Well, I don't have money for that," and he's like, "No, he he left money for you for your plane ticket to take care of him." And Ralph's like, "Okay, yeah, we should probably get out of here." And then Hillary and Gabriel start getting really creepy. They're like. Well, you know what, you guys, you guys can stay as long as you want and play with all the dolls for as long as you want. And Judy's like, no, my mom would be worried. We should go. But can we come back next summer and visit? And they're like, yeah, yeah, just call us up and we will we'll get the house all dolled up for you. Sensible Judy, like ending it on a positive note. They're such fans of her from beginning to end. And you're right, Ralph is very much aware that something is going on, as if the letter wasn't enough, and the second part about taking the hitchhikers with them really didn't seal the deal that this is a crock of bullshit. The fact that this shitty, horrible father would leave enough money, not only to get his daughter back home, but also this random man who he was just accusing of, I don't know, potentially molesting the daughter, uh, that he would leave money for both of them, to me, is just fucking utter nonsense but okay for the sake of story i'm gonna go along with it i'm gonna go along with it and i do like that judy in all of her naivete um still finds this old couple to be likable and in and is enchanted by them and still says goodbye to them and waves farewell and then proceeds to give them a teddy bear the teddy bear that uh, as a gift uh, as a parting gift to them as though they did something so wonderful and really they were just overseeing the killing of multiple people well, before she goes, Judy asks to see Miss say goodbye to Mister Punch. Remember, so she they go get they go get this Mister Punch doll so that she can say goodbye. And it's obvious now that it's her dad, and she gives it a hug. And as she's leaving, the Mister Punch doll does say, 
buy short stuff, which causes Ralph to be like, yeah, we're getting the fuck out of here. So they run to his car, which is out of the mud. Now they open the door and that teddy bear. Yeah. The teddy bear that Rosemary threw into the woods earlier is now in the front seat of the car. So Judy takes it, runs up and gives it to Gabriel and Hillary and says she wants them to keep it. And they gladly accept. And you can tell they're very, they're very charmed by, by Judy. They think that she's definitely a sweet little girl. And this is what makes this couple like not like you, you don't really hate him. You don't think of them as like villains, really, honestly, Judy and Ralph drive away. And as they're driving away, you do hear Judy ask Ralph, Hey Ralph, do you want to get married? He's like, yeah, sometime. She's like, good. My mom's really young and pretty. Did you ever want a daughter? (laughs) And then we get the car pulls away. We get a, a nice shot of the four main characters that were murdered. So we get Rosemary, David, Enid, and Isabel in their little doll form. And let me tell you, they're cute. They're a cute little doll ensemble. Oh, and they look pissed. They're so <laughs> mad that they're dolls. They're so pissed off. She even has her little head wrap. I love the little moment where, as they're driving away, Judy's trying to persuade Ralph to become her father. Like, it makes their relationship all the more lovable. Um, and I just really like that little bit of banter between the two of them. In my mind, in my heart, that's exactly what happened. He went back. He met her mother, fell madly in love, and to this day is considered her father. I like to think that. Roger. Roger, it's funny you say that. There was a sequel planned. Stuart Gordon had wrote a sequel, and the sequel was that that whole idea. The sequel st- picks up with uh, Ralph and Judy now living in Boston. He is married to Judy's mother, and one day out of the blue, uh, Judy gets a package in the mail, and it is Gabriel and Hillary in doll form. But the sequel never happened. God damn it. I wish it was happening. I know. Right. That sounds so cool. I would have loved to see that. Uh, But the film ends. The final frame of the film is another car with a family in it getting stuck in the exact same mud hole outside the house. I love this ending. It, It makes me feel like even though yet again, it's implausible that this many people would stumble upon this goddamn mansion in the same scenario uh, and find themselves wanting to stay the night. I love that this is like an ongoing thing, that this is literally like what this couple is here for is just to basically test people and test like the quality of people that they are. And if they're not good people, well, they're joining the fucking doll crew. <laughs> so we're, yeah, I mean, we're to assume then that there's something obviously supernatural running through this film, that, the, that the people are drawn to this house, people that maybe need to experience whether they are going to decide to be a good person or a bad person or drawn to this house and, and, and get stuck so that they can decide their fate. But we're also, uh, you know, it's obvious that all of these dolls in this house were not real dolls that Gabriel made, right? He's not really a doll maker in the sense that he make, builds all these dolls. All these dolls are like victims. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and there is a lot of fucking dolls. So that makes you realize just how, long this has potentially been going on and yeah and then the movie ends again it's a brisk 77 minutes i know we're at we're, we, this podcast is longer by almost twice as long as the actual movie is <laughs> but i mean it goes by at a pretty brisk pace and i gotta say you know revisiting this film after many years of not seeing it for this podcast i think that it is 
I mean, it's still such a fun, fun film. And I could not recommend this film enough to you know, younger horror fans that just want to dig into something that's not your traditional jet, uh, Jason, Freddy, Leatherface, Scream. Uh, this is just something so unique. And I know, you know, Child's Play, the Chucky doll, you know, Child's Play Chucky came out shortly after this. But this is a completely different tone. It never it never feels like a rip off of that. No, it never does. It's completely different. So I got to say, Roger, I really am. Gl- I know I picked this film, but I'm like, I just adore this film there. It's almost like a comfort film in a sense. Like this is a film I could just put on and feel like just comforted by if that makes any sense. Oh, at all. yeah. No, absolutely. I'm so happy you, you chose this film. I really enjoyed revisiting it probably more than I enjoyed initially viewing it as a youth. Um, I mean, I, I found it very fun. I, 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 you know, definitely have fond memories of watching it. I very much remember Ingrid's death sequence specifically popping out, but now watching it as an adult with the appreciation for like the level of fun and fancy and fantastical, uh, elements that play into it. I really appreciate it. I appreciate that they did something different. They gave us a, a somewhat gory horror movie, but they gave us a gory horror movie that also very much has heart to it. Uh, has several characters that you really like and want to root for, and also villains, quote unquote villains, that you also kind of want to root for. And that's so rare. Um, And they just did a great job all around, from the effects of the dolls, to the building of suspense in certain scenes, to the execution of several of the kills, to the overall characterization. Like I feel like it just checks off all the boxes. It's such an enjoyable experience. I'm really happy that you picked this one. I am too, Roger. And yeah, I, I really am upset that the sequel never came to fruition. But in a sense, maybe that's a good thing. You know, I mean... It's hard to, as we mentioned last week with Angel, it's really hard to capture lightning in a bottle twice. In a sense, in that sense, I'm kind of okay that this film is exists by itself because it's such a great little little piece of horror cinema that I just adore. And I know it is pretty much held in high regard in the horror community, which is which is really a great thing because it, it deserves it. It's a film that's so accessible to so many people like even if you're not the biggest horror fan i think you can watch this film and be entranced by it and it's a great film like like we talked about at the beginning of the episode to introduce a young horror fan with to get them excited and see what the possibilities of the genre can be outside of like i said outside of just jason and freddie so yeah dolls guys obviously we highly highly recommend it please 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 let us know your thoughts on the film on our social media accounts and Again, Apple Podcast reviews, our Patreon, which is linked in the show description. And now Roger is going to tell us what he picked for our next episode before we go. Yeah, I um, you know, I was moved by the era. I feel like I tend to sometimes lean into more modern titles. Sometimes I need to push myself outside of that box. So I wanted to do something, um, something a little different um, uh, next week. The title that I'm going to be selecting is none other than Toby Hooper's 1985 Space Vampire Offering, Life Force, which, Troy, I do believe you've never seen. I have never seen Life Force. Don't look up anything about it. Just watch it. 
Okay. Yeah, I have not looked up anything about it because, you know, we've been, yeah, I, w- I won't, I will not look anything up about it. Thank you. I think it's really going to do you right to just go in blind on this one. <laughs> I think you're going to be surprised by some of the things you find in Life Force. I'm very excited to watch Life Force with you. Um, I think this is very much a Roger Connors kind of film uh, in a lot of ways. And I, I'm, I'm pumped to discuss it with you. I'll leave my actual opinions and everything of the movie for the actual, you know, dissecting and, and review. When I say it's a Roger Connors kind of film, I say they go all out. They go all well, out. Well, guys, I feel like it's probably another title. It's like maybe, but it may be like a mutant title where not a lot of people have seen it. So, if guys, if you haven't seen Life Force, uh, be sure to check it out before next week so that you can, you know, we won't spoil anything for you. Roger, coincidentally, this will be the third Toby Hooper film we cover, right? We did Invaders from Mars and we've done The Fun House. And I've picked all. Well, no, you picked Funhouse. No, we didn't. We do. Um, is that is that the third? I thought we did another one of Toby Hooper's. Uh, the ones that come to my no Invaders from Mars and the Funhouse. You're right. You're right. Okay. We did the Texas Chain. We did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Uh, you know, no, you know what? We were talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre recently on our Patreon. That's a good transition. We're talking about amazing opening uh, credit sequences, and that was my one of my picks. Because I love me some Toby Hooper. So yeah, that's why. That was coming to mind. So he's quickly becoming, it seems like, our prominent horror director, which is fine with me. I mean, he's made some great films. I mean, Poltergeist. and oh, So Eaten Alive is one that I definitely we are going to cover at some point. But yeah, guys. So as always, we really hope you enjoyed the episode. And we really appreciate you tuning into us every week to listen to us just ramble for now it seems like two hours is our pretty much average about these films because we love doing it. So as always, guys, long, longer, longer than, than the, the film, film itself. itself. Let's keep going. But thank you guys for putting up with us, for tuning in, for for commenting, for liking our posts, for sharing or retweeting our tweets. And we see we, we notice it. Trust me. So we really appreciate you guys. So thank you. And until next week, when we cover Life Force and you'll get to hear my thoughts on a film i've never seen so my favorite kind of episode yeah so with that good night good night listeners good night take on me okay